what are some of your favorite movies where the protagonist is a war correspondent or an international reporter embedded in a dangerous situation? Well, you know, I'll throw a couple of them out there for you. Like, for example, Salvador. Uh, it's an Oliver Stone movie starring James Woods. And, you know, it's about a photojournalist who goes to El Salvador uh, to cover a civil war. You had uh, Under Fire. That one had oh, some big stars. You had Nick Nolte, Gene Hackman, Ed Harris, uh, three journalists who are covering a, regime, a corrupt regime in Nicaragua. Uh, then you also have The Killing Fields, another uh, well-known film with some big actors like Sam Waterston, John Malkovich. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually a 1984 British biographical drama uh, that talks about or looks at these journalists who are covering a deadly regime in Cambodia. I mean, we could go on and on. There are a lot of movies. And all of them, and so many more of them, try to either show the gritty danger of being a journalist who travels into dangerous countries to report these stories that no one else will cover. But they also kind of romanticize the idea of being a gritty reporter living in danger. And it's seldom ever like that. But I'm not the person to tell you this. I do envy journalists who take these dangerous chances because there are stories that would never be told otherwise. I'm just not that person. But... I want to introduce you to someone who is. There are reporters who are willing to go to the edges of the earth to find stories. They live out of their backpacks, literally. They're the sort of reporters who will go to some of the most dangerous, but yet most intriguing places. And we need people like this. Now I admit, on some level, I wish I was one of these people. Instead of being confined to the four walls of my soundproof studio, there are times when I wish I could just throw some gear and some clothes into a bag and take my imagination and just head out on one of these one-way trips. Well, like I said, I'm not that person. But I did meet someone like that years ago. When I was working at WGCU, the public media station in Fort Myers, someone told me about this young man named Alex Pena. He was a junior at FGCU at the time. This student had just gotten back from one of the most talked about spring break trips on campus. Probably on any campus. Alex went to Juarez, Mexico. He didn't go to a party. He didn't go and, and consume copious amounts of alcohol and chase bikini-clad co-eds. No. Alex packed a camera and some clothes into a bag, and he headed to what was at the time considered the most violent city in the world. And I had to ask him, why did he do it? It's so interesting to to reflect on that now because um, perhaps some people would have done that story and and moved on. I have been back to that city every year since, probably multiple times. Some of my best friends still live in that city. I have taught classes back in that same city, so I almost don't want to reflect on what I said at that time because me and my friends have a kick over probably how how terribly I misinterpreted the 
story and situation at the time and have such a better understanding of it now. But the idea was it had essentially become the most dangerous city in the world at the time. Um, it was dealing with something like eight to 10 murders a day for over a year. Um, and so I had sort of caught on to it, being interested in Latin America and the narco violence that was happening. And it happened at that time to be a really pivotal city in that. So I remember thinking, I've got a camera, I'll go. I reached out to some local students and, and these ones ended up being my friends sort of throughout the last decade or so still uh, to interview them. And they said, yeah, if, you, if you're here, come on, we'll take you on campus. We'll, you know, we'll let you in our home and we'll show you what's going on here. So I documented it. We sort of rode along with some police. We went to some crime scenes, uh, ended up uh, selling the footage to CNN at the time and uh, sort of spiraled from there in terms of like talking to you and, and where it was published. Got a lot of publicity on what was happening there and only sort of in the following years where I would return and go back that I realized sort of what had happened at that time in that city's history. That still is the most dangerous and violent time in the city's history to date. Um, sort of how the city got there. Um, it's been really fascinating. A good friend of mine, actually, the student that I'm referring to, just published a book on, on what happened specifically on that year that I was there. Um, so it, it it sort of was this like climax of me being ready to get out into the world and what was happening there. Um, and it all sort of unraveled and happened at once. But it's, uh, it's a story that I live with. <laughs> you know, one of the, I mean, I remember you telling me that at one point you... Um, you were meeting with somebody at a restaurant and I think you had missed like by a day, there was a shooting at that restaurant or something had happened. Yeah. I, yeah. At this point that's happened multiple times in my, <laughs> my trips back there. Not to say that it hasn't been, a, that it's no longer violent. It's just not as violent as it, as it used to be. But, um, but yeah, that, that was a common occurrence, especially, um, what would happen more often is that you would end up in a neighborhood that there was a shooting and you would leave or get there earlier before the police and there would be another shooting or sometimes you would hear um, the gunfire go off. I think that specific incident, there was a shooting in a, um, in like a nightclub in that area in a bar and restaurant. And um, that, that would happen. I mean, it's sort of like you don't see the violence until you do. And, and sort of as your time goes on in these dangerous areas, you go, Oh, you know, that was five hours ago. That was two days ago. Had I been there six hours earlier, or three hours later, and, and you sort of try not to think about all those things, but that's sort of daily life for people who live under these circumstances. So you, I wondered, like, when you finished school, I mean, you got, like I said, you got a lot of attention for that, and and it kind of opened up a lot of doors for you. But when you finished school, uh, what you were a freelancer, right? Yeah, at this point, I was thinking I've been through sort of all of the cycles of journalism. I was a freelancer. I worked for government media. I used to work for Voice of America News. Uh, and now I work for CBS News, which is corporate media. So I've sort of been through it all and, and experienced all variations of how you can report. Right after I graduated, I went freelance to Nairobi, Kenya, where I was freelancing for a number of organizations, but mostly for Voice of America News, um, television and radio. And that was just sort of a continuation of trying to build on, on what I had experienced in, in, in Juarez, Mexico, and using some of those contacts. But I sort of realized with just a camera and a backpack, you can do a lot. Um, you didn't need all the gear and the crews and, you know, all the technology that I, I had thought you might need to, to do the work. And so I just sort of went for it. Now, wait, you, how did you end up in, in Nairobi? Is that because there was an assignment there or is there specifically something about that place you wanted to go? One-way ticket. I just 
found it fascinating at the time. Um, this was a time, remember, this was 2009, 2010. So I graduated in 2011. This was sort of the height of the war on terror, which has sort of defined my generation in terms of our international news and our consumption of what was happening globally. So I wasn't going to go straight to Iraq or Afghanistan where sort of the action was happening at that time. But there was this younger brother group to Al-Qaeda who had been operating out of Somalia, who I actually learned through one of my favorite rap, learned about through one of my favorite rappers. His name was Kanan. Um, he was a Somali refugee who lived in Kenya and made his way to, to the United States and became sort of like an underground hip hop artist where I started learning about what was happening in East Africa. So my thought process was I can't just sort of roll into Kabul and embed myself with the military, but I can move myself to Nairobi, Kenya and sort of perhaps get on to the leading end of what was going to happen, where the war on terror was going to go. And eventually it did. You know, our war sort of shifted to this, this drone warfare, technological warfare that was playing out across Yemen and East Africa at the time, as opposed to um, the Middle East and Central Asia. So that was my thought, was try and go there, see what I can pull off. Um, I lived there for six, seven months, embedded myself in Somalia, made my way to South Sudan, um, and was selling radio and TV, really anything. You could do radio, sure. Television, sure. Uh, I was a yes man, but it worked out, and uh, and just sort of made my way around from there. All right. I, I mean, look, I, I, I looking at your looking at your background. This is amazing. I mean, you, places you've been, Juarez, Mexico, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, talking about the Kenyan military war against Al Shabaab in Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan border wars, smuggling operations in Jordan Syria border, food crisis in Cuba, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Um, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I think about my career. I think about when I was teaching, you know, the career of a lot of the young people that I was helping. I've never met a person like you, like that you put yourself in these places. And, and there's a I, listen, I have a great deal of admiration for you because we need to have reporters who do this. And very few can. But, you know, in all of these places that you've been in, all the travels that you've had, um, how often did you find yourself in in a situation where you thought, I don't want to be here, or this is too dangerous, or maybe you didn't? Danger, yeah, I mean, so that's always such a tough conversation because, and I feel like us journalists suffer from this a lot, which is we sort of constantly comparing ourselves to what other journalists are doing or what other journalists are uncovering or the sources of the contacts. And so I would sort of find myself, let's say, living in Nairobi, Kenya, covering a water crisis. But the next journalist over was under fire in southern Somalia. And so I, there was always this sort of degree of separation from what the danger level could be. Um, and I never felt like I was this war correspondent in a sense. I just felt like I was trying to make my way through these sort of like uniquely challenging places. And then sort of in retrospect going, yeah, actually, yeah, I was had been under fire or I had dealt with these very dangerous people. So it, it it's a very difficult sort of like something to process of was it ever too dangerous was it not too dangerous um probably but we are also very mission driven mission oriented people and that sort of always comes in retrospect on you know maybe for the better or the worse i don't know um but it's one of those things that you sort of decide early on are you are you willing to to pay the ultimate price for for this job and if you are that becomes a part of it um a really well-known uh journalist that uh, war correspondent who I started following before I started doing this said that there was these sort of three phases that war correspondents go through. And the first one was like the Superman phase where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was, 
I can do most things. Maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was something will happen to me if I stay here any longer. Um, I think probably throughout the last 10 years, I've been through all of those phases now, um, which is sort of brought an onset and change in my career and how I want to sort of do things. Um, but maybe you need those different phases to get things done, because if you approach everything very objectively, so actually, maybe this is not worth it for me to be here right now, but we need people to do that, right? No, that's that's exactly the truth. We have to have people who unfortunately put themselves in, in dangerous places. Um, so you basically were just living with your backpack and your gear, just traveling around and embedding yourself in, in all kinds of locations. I mean, what's life like? You don't know where you're going to sleep. You know, you didn't know where you're going to get your next meal. And I figure you got to, you know, you got to find a way to charge your batteries at least once in a while for your, your stuff. But I mean, I don't know what was, there's a romantic version of this story, obviously, but I mean, what was, what was life like for you those five years? There's, there's no doubt that, and probably a lot of people were just starting out that there was absolutely like a romanticized version of what war correspondent life would be like, or even just foreign correspondence and, and, and journalism in general, whether it's abroad or domestic, um, that goes away very quickly. Um, and then, and maybe rightfully so, so it weeds out sort of those who are involved in that, that reason, the sort of plane touches down and the new sights and the smells and the new foods. And then it's like, well, where am I going to get my next paycheck? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And all of a sudden this idea of traversing the globe with your backpack and a camera and meeting fascinating people becomes a job. You have to figure out how to do it. And then just like any other job that sort of wears off, but the work was important. So I kept doing it. I mean, I, when I moved to Kenya, I moved into a Kenyan boys youth hostel in a slum in Nairobi because it was $8 a night to stay there. And they gave you free breakfast and tea. So really it was only up to me to eat dinner. Um, so little, little tricks like that. <laughs> Embeds were my saving grace. If you embedded with any sort of military, whether it was Kenyan, U.S. military, I eventually ended up doing uh, 13 months with the U.S. military in Afghanistan, free housing, free food. Um, that was a, a freelancer's um, dream, really. So there's sort of all these like corresponding foreign hacks that you can come up with to sort of continue going. But the reality was, at least when I was an independent freelancer, it was always a struggle. I loved what I was doing. I was very happy, but it was very much a struggle. All right. What's the scariest moment you had? Again, that's so it's so difficult to to sort of say. I mean, the scariest moment. I mean, up until recently, we were I was in bed at work with a producer for CBS, a correspondent, um, Manuel Bajorquez, and we were crossing into the Darien Gap, which is run by the Cartel de Golfo in Colombia, and they were essentially trafficking all of the Haitian migrants uh, from Colombia to Panama through the jungle. And it sounds so silly, but we had a really scary moment where the boat that we were on in the middle of the ocean started taking on water. And I remember thinking out of all the places and all the things, a boat in Colombia, I would not have guessed that. Um, luckily, we had two engines and we were able to sort of our guy, I don't know what he was doing. I'm, I'm a, a boater for life. And he had put some plastic bags and rubber bands into that engine. I don't know how he made it work, but he did. And we kept going and we just sort of looked at each other like, man, you know, if you if you. If you would have told us how we'd go, we wouldn't have guessed this situation. So and all that to say, people think the war and the bullets and the bombs. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, it's it's not always that. It's just, you know, maybe it's a car ride somewhere, a crazy taxi driver. Usually they are. Um, it, it can be anything like that. I mean, that's not to downplay the dangers that, let's say, faced while embedded in Afghanistan. 
you know, there were times when, uh, when shelling was, it was a big issue. Um, insider attacks, you know, sometimes the fear of what's your most dangerous moment is worse than actually being in one. Um, I was there in 2013, 2014, where the Afghan soldiers were turning on the U S soldiers on their bases. And you just didn't know who, who to trust, which was so sad because this was the the people that they were arming and training to secure the country. You know, that was really scary. I know, Um, I know this is another tough question, but I'm just, want to know, like, is there a moment or a person that you uh, were talking to that you found most fascinating? Yeah. I mean, how many interviews I've even again, so recently, I think I like cried interviewing a young girl crossing the border in, in the Rio Grande, like three or four months ago just the, the powerful, like it doesn't have, I think people want to hear, you know, I spoke with this drug cartel, I've interviewed sicarios, I've interviewed militants and all that. It's, it's, it's almost less fascinating to me than just like the raw human emotion of, of somebody that wouldn't have had a voice. Um, you know, there, and, and Luis, you can speak to this too. There's these moments where you feel like if I wasn't here, nobody would hear what these people have to say. Um, and that, is so powerful to me. Those are like the really moving interviews that I, that I really live for. If I can secure an interview with the president, um, great, but I'm not the only one who can do that. But when you find yourself in these places where you're pretty confident that had you not been there, this person's story wouldn't have been told. I think that um, to me is, is journalism, right? That's, that's why we do it. You're listening to My Conversation with Alex Pena, producer for CBS Reports Documentaries. You can read more about him and his work at the website, thereporterstudio.com. By the way, you can also watch a video of this conversation. Just go to our YouTube channel, The Reporter Studio. And by the way, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it's on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, also on Podbean. Wherever you listen, please subscribe. And you know how it works. If you like it, if you really do like it, or maybe you hate it, fine. Just give it a review. See, I want to keep this podcast free. I want to keep the content free for everybody. So you know how it works. If you could just give me a little of your time, rate and review this podcast, I would deeply appreciate it. Thanks so much. Also, I want to mention that I have another podcast that's coming out soon, actually this summer. It's called Planet Earth 2072. Here's a little taste further into the future, things are going to become more and uncertain. The are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground. And that's going to result dense. in a significant sea level rise. Maybe Tackle this issue point. and address it in a meaningful way. Foreseen by events that we can't predict. Your friends we can project things. And then that's five, six, seven people. And the change goes that on. is more privileged and that is not dealing with climate effects on a regular Anybody basis. Anybody to be suspicious of people who claim to know what Miami will look like in 10 or 20 years, let alone 50 years. No one can guess what exactly will happen in 50 years, except that South Florida will likely not look much like it does today. The oceans will have risen, flooding will be a bigger challenge, and things are likely to be hotter. Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, we ask the question, what will Miami look like in 50 years? What will happen and how will we prepare? 
we spoke with researchers, politicians, and advocates about their fears for the future. You know, it's going to be harder to anticipate what is going to happen from day to day. And the people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground in very dense urban landscapes. And that's going to result in a significant sea level rise, maybe adding 20% to those numbers I just gave you. We also spoke with members of Gen Z. We can project them, but we really don't know what this climate catastrophe is going to look like. No matter what, that's not in your control. And I think that, you know, for acknowledging the problem now, we can definitely stop it from becoming much worse. We want to better our society, naturally. I think everyone does. The question of the future, what can we expect? Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, comes out June 2022. Planet Earth 2072 is coming out later in June. It is a production just like this of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Find out more at planetearth2072.com or on the Facebook page of the same name. Now let's get back to our conversation with Alex Pena of CBS Documentaries. He's going to share with us the dangers that reporters face internationally, but especially, believe it or not, here in the United States. And we also talked about his thoughts on how journalists could better relay to the audience what our true intentions are. Yeah, I've, I've, I've sat across from a lot of powerful, famous people, and some of them are interesting. I'm not going to say that it's not. There's a level of interest, of course, but yeah, talking to the, the, that one person that you would never hear anything about, their story. They change your perspective. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Absolutely. When you're, you know what, you think about, and you have, you have this perspective that none of us have, is you being in the United States, you see how journalists are treated here. What are journalists treated like beyond our borders? Everywhere you've been, what, what kind of treatment did you get? What did you find? Yeah, unfortunately, you don't have to go far to find the most dangerous country in the world for journalists, which is Mexico. Um, quite literally right across the border. Um, you know, I, I think about it almost every day because I still have friends that that operate and, and cover really dangerous stories there. There is a level of privilege being not just American, but being a foreign journalist operating in these locally dangerous countries, say Somalia or Afghanistan. There is a level of geopolitics, a sort of sphere of of coverage that you have that people don't want to involve themselves. And so that's not to say that an American journalist, let's say in Mexico is not in danger, but we are far safer than local journalists ever will be. Um, Which is, you know, I've, I've experienced it myself where people want to go with me on stories if they're local, because they think that it gives them a sort of extra level of protection. Now, of course, American journalists have been killed across the globe. But it, does, it pales in comparison to the amount of local journalists who are jailed, who are killed, who are, are kidnapped. Um, it's just, it is incredibly sad. And unfortunately, that number is going up across the globe. 
So what do you think about what you're seeing right now, these last few years? And it's, you know, I always point to people, this is not unique. We're just seeing an intensification. Part of it may just be because of social media, you know, messaging gets out so much more, it's more prevalent than before. But it's, we also have seen more attacks on germs. What do you think about what you're seeing these last few years here? Yeah, it's been really, really fascinating to see because that was something that sort of went unaffected here in the U.S. by us in terms of I never really worried about my safety as a journalist in the United States. That that just was never an issue um, to say over the past four or five years, CBS feeling required to hire security for us on certain assignments domestically um, to attacks um you know, the political violence that we've seen, the protests that we've had to cover. Um, I would qualify those as attacks on journalists. It's very clear that we're defined members of the press, um, yet we are still have been arrested. We've still been attacked from the protesting side on both sides of, of that aisle. Um, the level of respect for journalism um, and people will come up with their own conclusions of where that came from definitely has deteriorated. And that, that to me is just like a, a sentient feeling that I've had over the last few years where I felt like we were very respected in the field and people wanted to talk to us. So now that level of disrespect has actually become violent at times. All right, let's move to your career has changed quite a bit now. So you're not, you're not worried about where that next meal is coming from. Um, you're working on documentaries. And that's a big shift because, you know, you're looking for that daily story and, you know, the, what the next story is the next story. And now you're working on these very big projects that take time. They take a lot of time. Why the shift? What did you want to do? Why did you want to do that? Yeah, I sort of came to it's been roughly a little over a decade in the daily news. Um, and I'm sure I'll, I will miss that rush. I mean, you know, that feeling of, of watching that sort of headline drop and then you go, I'm going or, you know, who am I going to call next? Um, that That's a really vivid way to live life. Um, it's very exciting. But after sort of reflecting back on the last years of in journalism, I sort of wanted to find what's the way to to dive deeper into certain narratives. You know, they make these joke about journalists. We can talk a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and that's probably very true. Um, so perhaps as I enter this new phase in my life, I'd like to become, you know, more hyper-focused on one thing or, or choose one issue and sort of take a deeper dive and help people really understand it. Um, I absolutely understand like the nuances of, of television and what I work and how much information we can give in a one minute and 30 second television piece. I've always felt television is very important to show people what's happening. Um, doesn't necessarily always do the best job in helping people understand why or to contextualize what's happening. So me moving into documentary is the TV version of context, right? It's to take an issue that perhaps I've been working on for the last 10 years, but only talked a little bit about a lot of times and really bring the viewer into those moments and help them sort of understand it's a different beast. You know, I, I, I've been seeing these headlines and these breaking news come across and then my first uh, reaction is grab the bag. You know, what's the, and I'm like, wait, no, I can't go. I'm working on something else. That's also important. So that part's been um, sort of difficult, but I'm, but I'm happy to try it. Um, CBS is, is investing in, in that a lot right now um, in terms of streaming and documentary. Um, it's certainly where the future of, of television is going. So, you know, there's a part of it is me trying to get involved in that as well. Um, and, and we'll see. I mean, I think journalism is reinventing itself right now. And this is me sort of trying to be a part of it. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You're right. It's like we we have to dabble in a lot of things. 
Um, is there a particular issue that you're focused on with your documentaries? Are you, is something you want to hyper-focus on? There'll be multiple different documentaries throughout the year, so it won't be one issue in terms of all of them. Um, but I will be doing essentially like half hour or it can be half hour, 45 hour long documentaries on one specific issue or even like a series in a row. So the idea will be to take something that's affecting um, whether domestic or abroad and then do hyper focus focused one hour docs on that issue alone. And the time really allots you. It's so interesting. Like how many times have the best sound ended up on your cutting room floor? Um, And that's something that I think we all have made peace with over the years. And now I find myself sort of like, no, no, put it in, put it in, let them hear it, let them hear the whole thing. And, you know, maybe that, you know, the whole soundbite culture is something that we get a lot of flack for, which is, oh, you're just looking for your soundbites. You know, this is an opportunity for me to, you know, you have the time. So if the, if the viewer didn't understand it by the end of your documentary, that's more on me than my time restrictions, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Do you think, um, and I know that you just, I mean, you, you started doing this not that long ago, but um, do you think you're ever going to go back to that life, you know, that, that wandering life or is that done? It's not done. I don't, I don't know that that ever goes away. <laughs> um, it's not done. It's just short answer. I mean, that it is journalism again, as you, as you know, and for longer than I have, it is a lifestyle. Um, it, it, you know, there's a lot of other ways to make a lot more money. That's, that's for sure. Um, and if that was the case, we'd probably both be doing that. But once you're in this, it's it's for life, and so yeah, yeah, no, no, totally understand that, absolutely. Um, what do you think, Alex? What do you think people get wrong about what we do? And I, I mean, you you've been saying it throughout. I mean, you know what what a journalist is, and you've sh- you know sharing your story, you've given us a taste of that. But I don't know what you know in your experience. What do you think people get wrong about us? And is, is that on us to try to help them understand it? If they're not understanding it, then perhaps it is on us. I'm absolutely a believer that, you know, if we've lost the faith, the faith of the American public, then it's perhaps something we're not doing right. What I think is, is lost and people don't understand is that we are trained to do what we do for the most part. Most of us, most of us wanted to be journalists, which is a trade. And we studied how to do it properly. We learned the right methods and we implement it. And so I feel like what gets lost in this really politically divisive world is in the, let's say in the blue and right world, take a, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with this now, a carpenter, for example, who may like blue and and squares, but he's a trained carpenter. And if he has to make a red circular table, he absolutely can. There's nothing that would stop him from or make him for doing it inaccurately. And I feel like because people have all of these assumptions of us as journalists and where we come from and what we do in our backgrounds, you and I are both Latino journalists. There's no doubt that when we step into a room, people make assumptions about who we are and where we come from and what we believe, but we're journalists at the end of the day. So we, we have learned to approach stories as unbiasedly as possible. We have learned how to craft the stories and tell voices to people we agree with and we disagree with. It makes no difference to me whether I agree with you or not. And I think that's been lost in the really politically divisive world, in the social media world, where people feel like they're getting raw news from live feeds on Twitter and live feeds on Facebook. And they say, this is the real news. But those people have agendas and they haven't been trained. And that's fine. We need that. Some of the smartest minds in the world are commentators and analysis. But what we do is different. We're journalists. 
And I really try hard in my work and in the people that I work with to maintain that because if we lose that, then all, all is lost. Um, and if, and if they don't believe that now, then yes, it's on us to continue to prove that to them. Um, but we, we are what we are because we've, we've taught it to ourselves and we have the experience to do it. Um, and that's sort of the mentality I try and bring to all of my work. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Um, you know what, let me finish with this. Uh, if you go back, if you could go back and talk to that young Alex, uh, you know, before he goes off on that spring break trip to a very dangerous city. I think if I recall, too, you didn't tell your parents what you were doing until after the fact. They knew I was going to Mexico. I mean, that part was true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know. What, you know, what, uh, what, what do you tell that kid? Your head's in the right place. Your heart's in the right place. You'll make mistakes along the way. You'll do some crazy things. You'll make right decisions or make wrong decisions, but, uh, but your heart's in the right place and you're doing the right thing. I, I truly feel like that, that 10 years down the road, I don't, I've made mistakes, but I don't regret trying. I think I approached everything wholeheartedly and openly and honestly. And as a journalist, you know, I, I really, I remember I was coming up in that era where it was, you know, the social media was the new frontier and you could, you don't need network news. You don't need newspapers. You can publish on your own. I didn't approach it that way. I truly believed in journalism in the, in the establishment of journalism. And, and that's what I went for. So, you know, if that young kid was questioning that you're doing the right thing. Like I said, Alex, you know, uh, around that time, I mean, I had worked with a lot of young people, um, you know, and again, before that, when I was at FGCU or WGCU, uh, I was at UF teaching, and I'd met a lot of young journalists. And it's not that I, w I could predict, like, oh, that one, she'll make it, he'll make it, they won't. But, you know, it's just I knew there was a level, it's that commitment to journalism. That's That was the thing. And and then I met you, and I said, oh, my gosh, no, this this is the guy who's going to teach us all. And But it's it's no question, when you look at your career, like I knew from that moment that this guy understands it. He gets it, and he wants it. And that's... I. So I've always had a great deal of admiration for you, man. I really have. But you you know as well as I do in the journalism world, you know, I don't know that there's ever a a you've made it. We're only as good as our no, last story, true. right? No, you're right. And so, you know, everyone knows you're only as good as your last story. It doesn't really matter what you do. So, you know, I don't know that there'll ever be a point where I say I've made it, but as, if I'm still telling stories um, and the last one I did was good, then I'm at least on the right track. That and I would say this too, actually, I, and maybe it's just in my age, I've gotten to the point where it's, it's, where's the next story? That's just how I think. Where's the next story? So to be able to sort of understand it and, and foresee that, not that you have to predict it, but just to sort of try and analyze it from a different perspective and say, where is this story going? Um, to sort of make the news instead of follow the news. That's, that would be ideal. I'm still working on it. Alex, I appreciate having you in the Reporter Studio. Thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. You've been listening to my conversation with Alex Pena. He's a producer for CBS Reports Documentaries. And like you heard, this was a guy I met when he was still in college and his story really inspired me. Now, what started your career? 
what launched you into this industry because not many of us would give up a spring break to travel off to a dangerous city to get a story and then after college go off to Kenya and then spend the next decade just bouncing around from one dangerous country to another I mean that's impressive but like I said not everybody could do it Alex is one of those people who can and I'm really glad that he's there because we need people like him I also want to go back to something that he said too about again how the public views journalists and I have this question for you those of you who are not journalists what do you think about journalists and look again you may have a really negative opinion about reporters and the news media that's fine but have you ever asked yourself where that opinion came from where that originated and if you could meet a journalist what would you want to ask them I mean sincerely what would you want to know because that's what this podcast is all about is to answer that question I just want to help you better understand I'm not saying that all journalists are perfect we make mistakes we're human we cannot always be completely objective but a lot of us are trying to do the best we can to simply report the truth all right I said my piece look post your comments post your questions wherever you listen to this podcast on YouTube or at the website thereporterstudio.com coming up next week on the podcast I think that journalism journalism framed by a preponderance of hot takes is not my idea of great journalism um I think we need more reporting and fewer opinions. We talk with Lynette Clementson, director of the Wallace House, the Knight Wallace Fellowships for Journalists, and the Livingston Awards at the University of Michigan. All of that coming up next week on the podcast. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at News Media Host or on LinkedIn or YouTube. Again, look up the Reporter Studio. As always, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening. Again, the Reporter Studio is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.